Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. You're listening to the Qalam Podcast. Qalam is an organization that is dedicated to making Islamic knowledge accessible to everyone. Alhamdulillah, Qalam has been able to serve so many people all across the world in so many ways. And now, Qalam has the opportunity and the ability to take its work to the next level. Qalam now has the ability to expand its offerings to people all across the world in so many different ways. Qalam is acquiring a campus, a home, where we can continue to do the work that we do and in fact increase what we do. But we need your help, we need your support to make that dream a reality. Go to qalamcampus.com and donate generously. Every single person listening to this podcast benefiting from Qalam, I need you to go there and donate and share that link far and wide and let's all of us come together, invest into our sadaqah jariyah and take this work to the next level. Jazakumullahu khairan. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Now enjoy the podcast. Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. Alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah wa kafa wa salamun ala ibadihi alladhin astafa. Khususan ala Sayyidi Rasuli wa Khatim al-Anbiya wa ala alihi al-Askiya wa ashabihi al-Atqiya. أما بعد فأعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم اقرأ بسم ربك الذي خلق خلق الإنسان من علق اقرأ وربك الأكرم الذي علم بالقلم علم الإنسان ما لم يعلم صدق الله العظيم Today we start a new series, a new class once again focusing on a book written by Sheikh Abdul Fattah Abu Ghudda rahimahullahu ta'ala. This book of his is titled Ar-Rasul Al-Mu'allim. The Messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam, the teacher. In this book of Sheikh Abdul Fattah Abu Ghudda rahimahullahu ta'ala, he examines how Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam was as an educator. Inshallah we will try to cover it in as much as detail as we can. And we make dua that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives us tawfiq to understand the message that Shaykh Abdul Fattah is delivering to us through the example of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And even greater than that, we make dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that He allows us to live that example and be prophetic role models of what teachers and mentors should be. Today I wanted to spend some moments discussing some introductory discussions related to the subject. When we speak of education, the first discussion we need to have is of knowledge. This is a conversation that I've had with students multiple times before, even in this gathering and outside. But for the sake of those who are joining us now and are a part of this journey at this point, in Islam we make a distinction between information and knowledge. We live in a world post-printing where knowledge is abundantly available. When the printing press came into existence and books were now being printed in the thousands and hundreds of thousands and being shipped across the world, Muslim scholars 
were very reluctant to this whole new concept of printing books. Before that, before the printing press, when it came to accessing knowledge, most books were handwritten. And you can imagine, because that's a very inefficient way of copying a book compared to the technology we have these days, there were fewer books available, and that therefore not everyone had access to knowledge. Uh, they were a group of people who really gave it everything. And those who wanted access to knowledge, rather than relying on written documents, they would rely on the oral tradition, where they would sit at the feet of a scholar and hear it and write it down from them and, and learn and observe them. So knowledge wasn't as easily accessible. But when something isn't easily accessible, you are required to sacrifice for it, and therefore there is an appreciation for that thing in your life. The problem with making anything easily accessible is its value goes out the window. People don't appreciate it anymore. This applies to clothing. It applies to uh, electronics. It applies to anything. You have high supply, you're going to have low demand. You have low supply, what's going to happen? High demand, economics 101. And the same thing applies with knowledge. One of the greatest concerns ulama had about knowledge becoming abundantly available is that people would lose value for it. It's the same concern that exists in today's world where we talk about streaming content online. Should you stream lectures online or not? Or should you do everything in person requiring students to come and sit? No matter what the challenge is, no matter what the sacrifice is, you make the sacrifice and come and sit in front of the teacher. You may not gain as much as knowledge, but whatever little you do gain, you will value it a lot. When we were students in Madrasa, one of our teachers, Sheikh Bilal, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala preserve him and prolong his life, he taught us hadith. He would give a dars in his masjid, which is probably the closest masjid to the madrasa. The madrasa was in a small English town called Ramsbottom. <laughs> what a name, man. It's very British. Huh, Sarah? She's British. Yes. Uh, and then secondly, next to the city was this town, bigger, it wasn't a town, we were more like in a village, this was a more of a town-like vibe, a city-like vibe, not city, but town-like vibe, was a place called Bury. So there was a masjid there, which is another really British name, Bure, <laughs> as British people would say it. <laughs> so, Sheikh Bilal had a masjid there, and he would give dars there every evening. Every evening he had a dars. All year, every day, he had a dars. Minus the two Eids, he had dars in the evening every day. And the amazing thing is he never repeated content. It was just these different subjects. I remember once he covered the ayah, Ya ayyuhalladheena amanu in tattaqullaha yaja'al lakum furqana. And he spoke on this word furqan for 12 weeks. Just that one word, Furqan. So much depth in ilm, so much depth in ilm. May Allah protect him. As students, we weren't able to go during the weekdays because we didn't have cars and going from one part, one, one, one place to another place required buses. And then for those of you who've traveled on buses, the whole commitment of walking to a bus, waiting for one, getting on one, getting off it, walking, the whole going and coming takes a few hours even if you try to be efficient with it. 
So we would wait for Saturdays to come, and on Saturdays we would go to those gatherings of knowledge because Saturday was our day off. So we'd go out to Bury and spend time there and just enjoy the, the, the company of the sheikh. There was a sacrifice involved in seeking that knowledge. Because there were days that you would go to the bus stop and it would be raining and by the time you made it to the bus stop you were soaked. And you had to keep going. And there were days that it would be very cold and you would get on a bus and you would go anyway. And there would be days that you'd be on the bus and there was some drunk dude sitting next to you who's like about to vomit on you but you would go anyway. And there were times where you would make that journey and then you would get off the bus and when you got off the bus you had to walk for another 10 minutes uh, across the town center before you made it to the actual masjid. And when you got there, on rare occasion, Sheikh Bilal wouldn't be there to deliver the dars. And on top of all of that, for a student, you guys will appreciate this, there was a cost for all of this. It was a minimal cost, but it was, there was definitely a cost involved because you had to pay for everything. You had to pay for your bus ticket and pay for the return and everything. The beauty of all of that was that the knowledge that I was able to learn from my sheikh and my teacher in those gatherings was profound because it was based on a sacrifice. The knowledge could be basic and simple. But if it's based on sacrifice, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will open up the meaning of that knowledge to the student, possibly even a step beyond what the teacher may be actually trying to convey. Allah will open up that ilm to them. Because it's based off of a sacrifice. And this is why the story of Salman al-Farsi is so important. A companion of Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa who made tremendous sacrifice. Bilal story is so important. A companion of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa that made tremendous sacrifice. And then add to that all of the muhajirun and add to that all of the ansar. These people made sacrifice. Every day they had to work hard. In today's world, knowledge has become readily available. And it's now at our fingertips. If someone wants to learn a subject in Islam, you can do so without having to even leave the comfort of your home, without having to leave the comfort of your own chair, your own sofa, because it's all available to us. Tafsir, what language do you want it in? Hadith, what do you want to study? Tell us. It's all available. But as we know, when the supply goes up, what happens to the demand? It tanks. So a community that has so much information, unfortunately has no real knowledge. Knowledge is no longer transformative. There was a time where someone would post an inspirational quote and you would save it right away and you would maybe print it and put it on your wall next to your desk because it was so valuable, it was so rare. Inspirational quotes today, what do they mean? Right? I mean, you go on social media and that's all it is. It's just, never-ending inspirational quotes, whether they make sense or not, but they're just, you know, they're just reverse sentences, that's what it is. If you're too smart to do this and you're too smart, then you're too that to be smart. You guys get the idea? It's just reverse sentences. And it's, uh, the, the world's full of that. Uh, wisdom, mashallah. <laughs> now, now, what we're looking for in Islam is al-ilm, is knowledge. Knowledge in Islam we had this discussion last night while Sheikh Hamza was visiting us. There was a discussion that I briefly started and I didn't get a chance to explore it. But today I wanted to spend a little bit more time talking about this. When we define ilm, 
Historically, philosophers have used the term as-sura. They say as-suratu al-hasiratu inda al-mudrik. They refer to knowledge as an idea. It's a concept, it's an image. So for example, when I walk into the room and I look at an apple on a table, the, the moment I look at it, there's an image that comes into my mind and that image represents information, right? There is, a, there, is, there is an understanding that I develop in that moment. That in itself, that's knowledge right there. Muslim scholars, when they define ilm, they use the word sifa. They describe it as a sifa. Sifa means a characteristic, a trait, an adjective. A sifa is only good if it is attached to someone or something. Tall in itself doesn't mean anything. I can say a tall man. Now there's an image that comes to your mind. This information has some functionality to it. Tall in itself doesn't mean anything. Red doesn't mean much. I can see a red shawl. Now that means something. So what we're saying is that the reason why they described it as a sifa is because ma'lumat, information, stand alone doesn't mean anything. It means nothing. The world is full of useless information. You can go on YouTube and they have these videos and channels dedicated to just people sharing knowledge of the obscure, random stuff. Did you know why, you know, pen caps have a hole on one end of them? Like random stuff like that. Do you know why ridges exist at the bottom of your bottle, right? It's for stability, by the way. <laughs> That's me. I was telling my students the other day that, you know, Bluetooth, you guys know Bluetooth? It's a It's in reference to the, there was this man who, uh, he, he played a very important role in providing a truce between two European nations. So the people who found the, um, found the technology, they were so inspired by him that they actually uh, named the technology after him. And if you actually look at that weird Bluetooth symbol, you know that thing, that, that weird looking two triangle with the bow and arrow kind of vibe logo they have? It's actually a combination of his, of his initials. It's a, in, it's a Nordic language. If you take both of his, uh, his initials and you place them over one another, that's your Bluetooth sign in reference to this, uh, this, this person who was an inspiration to them. Like this, there's knowledge of so much obscure and random stuff out there. But that's not what we're looking at. In Islam, we're looking for knowledge being a sifa. How does it connect to someone? How does it bring change to someone? What value does it add to you? Another thing, some ulama, while defining knowledge, they refer to it as a path, a wasila, a tool that connects you to something. Either it connects you to earning a living, it connects you to providing uh, safety for other people, it, prevents, it, it leads you to, it provides for you an opportunity to maybe provide medical attention towards another person. Or maybe it gives you knowledge to provide food for someone else, that you are now a chef and you know how to cook. 
So it always leads to something. If the knowledge doesn't lead to anything, they didn't even consider it to be knowledge. Then you have Mullah Ali Qari, ta'ala, famous commentator of Mishkat al-Masabih. When he defined ilm, he defined it as al-ilmu nurun muqtabasun min masabih mishkat al-nubuwa. He says true knowledge is that which is derived from muqtabasun, it is derived and taken from min masabihi mishkat al-nubuwa. From the lanterns of nubuwa, of prophethood. Right? From the source of light, the Prophet wasallam, Because Nabi wasallam was given knowledge by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So the first thing I wanted to start off this, 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 this class with was, this message. Whether it's you as an individual going to seek knowledge, or whether it's you as a teacher providing that knowledge, we need to differentiate between random information and actual knowledge. Random information will clutter the mind and it really doesn't have much value. Let it be. Focus on gaining knowledge that benefits you. There is this thought in our mind that, oh, if I, if I learn this one day, it'll be useful to me. You have to ask yourself that what you're learning, is it something that you interact with? Is it something that benefits you? Can something benefit you? Anything could benefit you. But you want to prioritize in life, in your limited life, what do you want to learn and where do you want to be? Therefore, before you even start seeking knowledge, the first thing you need to do is identify where you want to be. This is something we'll discuss in the class in the weeks ahead. But if someone were to ask me this question, that what's the first thing a teacher should do for a student? I would say, show them a dream. They have to see a dream of where they're going in life, what they want to do, what they're contributing towards, because knowledge is a path that leads somewhere. If they don't know where that somewhere is, what's the point of going on this path? If we were to go on a road trip and say that we're going to um, a state park that has beautiful white sand, um, and uh, you're going to enjoy it, the kid will say, okay, let's do it. Right? I know where I'm going. So we have children that are going through school every day. They're going to school, waking up, and you know, adults and even you know, the elderly in our, in our community that are going to college, they're going to school, they're going to first grade, second grade, elementary, and all these years. But if you ask that child, what's the purpose behind this? They don't know. Many children assume that this is just another form of daycare. Maybe my parents want me out of the house, so I'm just going. But I don't know where I'm going and why I'm going where I'm going. See a dream first. Figure out what your dream is. And that's where the mentor actually comes in. I think there is a teacher whose goal is to teach you how to get to your dream. But the mentor helps you recognize your potential and see the dream in the first place. That's what a murabbi does. That's what a real mentor does. They help you see the dream. Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, the dream he showed the companions was Jannah is waiting for you. That's your dream. That's where you're going to go. How do you get there? Let me be your teacher as well. يُعَلِّمُهُمُ الْكِتَابَ وَالْحِكْمَةَ وَيُزَكِّيهِمُ Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa offered so many roles at any one given time. Okay? So, knowledge is a tool 
that will help you reach somewhere. In Islam, we have to identify where we're going. What is our goal? What's our objective? I feel like there isn't a single answer to this. It's not like there's one objective in life. The truth is that you have multiple objectives in life depending on where you are in life, what's going on in your life. The ultimate objective, hopefully, in all of our lives is to gain the pleasure of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, to build a relationship with Allah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَمَا أُمِرُوا إِلَّا لِيَعْبُدُ اللَّهَ مُخْلِصِينَ لَهُ الدِّينَ حُنَافًا That they were not commanded, وَمَا أُمِرُوا They were not commanded, إِلَّا لِيَعْبُدُ اللَّهَ But they worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. مُخْلِصِينَ لَهُ الدِّينَ Making their affair sincere, حُنَافًا Cutting away from all distractions, just focusing on one Allah, the ultimate goal. Aside from that, people have other goals and objectives. Someone needs to provide for their family. Another person wants to be a builder. Someone wants to be a physician. So now, there are different goals that you have in your life that are all objectives and goals that need to be set in place to ensure that you can live your life in a harmonious fashion, in an appropriate way. Now, <clears throat> now, when you know what your objective is, you can carefully choose what knowledge you bring into your life. More selective, more careful. Imam Ghazali rahimahullah ta'ala, while addressing this issue, in his beginning of guidance, he has this beautiful passage in which he defines ilm. I love it. When I had the opportunity to teach this book years ago, I recall reading this passage and thought to myself that it's such a beautiful way of presenting what ilm and knowledge is. He said, knowledge is that which allows a person to see their own defects. Knowledge is that which creates in you an interest for the hereafter. True knowledge is that which turns your heart away from worldly pleasures. True knowledge is what? It's that which allows you to see the traps of shaitan. What is true knowledge? He says true knowledge is that which allows you to see and understand how shaitan used knowledge against people and threw them in the, in, the fit of the pyre, in the pit of the fire of hell. The hadith of Sahih Muslim is known very well. Where Rasulullah told us of the first three people to go to the fire of hell. Who are these three people? It's a terrifying narration, the truth is. Because when you read it, it scares you at your core. You're worried that, oh my God. Because these three people, when you read it, what you see is that these people were such that their actions outwardly were virtuous. But in the back end, when it came to their goals, their objectives, their purpose behind doing it, it was flawed. And therefore, their good deed did not bring them any benefit. Who are the three people? Anyone know? Number one, we have the scholar. The second? The one that was charitable. And number three? The shaheed. The one that was martyred in the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Imagine the one who gave their life to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala became a shaheed, was martyred. But they did it, why? Just to get praised by people. That's what it was. I was speaking about this with some of the students earlier today. 
that I see this as a big flaw even in a lot of parenting. Some parents, they dedicate their lives to their children. Why? So people in the community will say that so-and-so mother and so-and-so father gave their life to their child. They are at the risk of losing the reward of being a mother or father. Why? Just for some props? Just to show off? To get your praise from people? Rasulullah tells us that on the Day of Judgment, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will say to people who did deeds for other than Allah, that go to those people and get your reward from them. There's nothing here for Allah, nothing here with Allah for you because you didn't do it for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Imam Ghazali's definition, it draws out an internal understanding of what knowledge is. Because in his Ihya al-Umuddin, um, Imam Abu Hamid, he talks about knowledge. And while talking about it, he divides knowledge into various categories. Okay? He divides knowledge into various categories. For example, he first starts off by saying that knowledge is either fard ayn or fard kifaya. Again, as an educator, you have to make this distinction. What is the ruling of the knowledge that I'm offering the student? How important is this in their life? Is it fard ayn? Fard al ayn in Arabic means it's a term that scholars use that refers to this being knowledge that is mandatory upon every individual. Simple example, how to clean yourself after using the bathroom. Simple example, praying salah, doing wudu. This is necessary for every person to know because we all have to do it. Then on the other hand, there is a second type of knowledge which is fard kifaya, fard al-kifaya, which means not every individual in society needs to have this knowledge, rather a group of people need to know so they can solve everyone's everyone's situation or everyone else's problems or queries, answer them for them. So you know, I was saying earlier that you have, the, you have this random information and everyone's like, oh, but I should know this one day it'll come in handy. I should know this one day it'll come in handy. It's not a sustainable way to live life and neither should people be prepared for that. We need to create specialists. Your job is to be a physician. Your job is to be a financial advisor. Your job is to be a builder. The builder doesn't need to know medicine. The person doing medicine doesn't need to know fiqh. The one doing Islamic law doesn't need to worry about math. When you come to that crossroad and you need math as a faqih, as a jurist, and that day will come, when you come to, for example, rulings related to Islamic inheritance law, then go and, go and re reference that person. I am no therapist. As an imam, I'm not a therapist. I could be a soundboard for people, but if someone needs therapy, there's a young person who might be suicidal, may Allah protect our shabab, we take them to a therapist, that this person right here is an actual qualified therapist. In Urdu we have a saying that Shaykh Hamza referenced yesterday too. We say, Neem Hakim Khatrayajan, Neem Mullah Khatrayiman. Which means, if you're half a doctor, your patient's life is in danger. Because it's going to be a half a diagnosis, half a prescription, and half a cure. You're going to kill people. A great example of this is when you go to uh, Desi Dawats, you know those weekend parties, and all the uncles get together and they all talk about their prescriptions and their solutions for diabetes. I've heard that if you drink this tea, your diabetes will be okay. And then someone will say, 
Corona kuch nahi kar sakta hai. That if you take a steam bath and if you allow that steam to really go into you, Corona can't do anything at all. And then there was one head of state that went as far as telling people to use detergent to wash out Corona. <laughs> you guys remember that? So in, in, Arab, in Urdu we say, Neem Hakim, Khatarayajan. They have a similar statement like this in Arabi. Nisfu Tabib wa Nisfu Alim, right? So, um, what is it? He said, Hada Yufsidul Abdan wa Hada Yufsidul Adiyan. Like, there's, there's a similar statement like this in Arabi as well. So, Neem Hakim Khatarayajan. Half a doctor, your life is in danger. And the second was, Neem Mullah Khataray Iman. Neem means half cooked, something that's not ready yet, right? Something that's still not fully ripe. Neem Mullah, half a doctor, half a scholar, Khatara Iman, your Iman is in danger now. So we have, to be, we have to differentiate and understand that there are areas of specialty. This area, this sort of knowledge, this division of knowledge is what we refer to as Fard al-Kifaya. So Imam Muhammad al-Ghazali says that um, مَا هُوَ فَرْضُ عَيْن وَمَا هُوَ فَرْضُ كِفَايَةً Now he says, the ulama differ in opinion on what is فَرْضَ عَلَيْن There is a difference of opinion among scholars. What is فَرْضَ عَلَيْن اِخْتَلَفَ النَّاسُ فِي الْعِلْمِ الَّذِي هُوَ فَرْضُ عَيْن عَلَى كُلِّ مُسْلِمِ فَتَفَرَّقُوا فِيهِ أَكْفَرَ مِنْ عِشْرِينَ فِرْقَةً And they've divided into over how many opinions? Over 20 opinions. وَلَا نُطِيلُ بِنَقْلِ التَّفْصِيلِ وَلَكِنْ حَاصِدُهُ أَنَّ كُلَّ فَرِيقٍ نَزَّلَ الْوُجُوبِ عَلَى الْعِلْمِ الَّذِي هُوَ بِصَدَدِهِ He says the summary of it is, everyone claimed فَرْضَ عَيْنِ was their subject. You guys understand? الَّذِي هُوَ بِصَدَدِهِ What did everyone say? The subject that I specialize in, the mathematician said what? Math is فَرْضَ عَيْنِ The physician said what? Medicine is فَرْضَ عَلَى الْعَيْنِ so he said, فَقَالَ الْمُتَكَلِّمُونَ هُوَ عِلْمُ الْكَلَامِ وَقَالَ الْفُقَهَا هُوَ عِلْمُ الْفِقْهِ وَقَالَ الْمُفَسِّرُونَ وَالْمُحَدِّثُونَ هُوَ عِلْمُ الْكِتَابِ وَالسُنَّةِ So the jurist said that what is mandatory for everyone to know is Islamic law, right? When it came to hadith, the scholars of hadith said that you need to know hadith, that's فَرْضَ الْعَيْنِ He said, however, the truth of the matter is that Knowledge, Imam Ghazali then says, can further, before you even go to Fardha'ayn, Fard Kifaya, there is another uh, division, another perspective of knowledge that needs to be understood. He said, all knowledge falls into two categories. There is that knowledge which is to deal with things that are tangible and physical and they're apparent in front of you. Then there is that knowledge, a second type of knowledge, which is to do with the unseen. Knowledge of things that are not visible to you. And we'll come to this stuff later on. Okay? As for things that are tangible, he says now that knowledge is in three categories. So when we talk about knowledge of things that are physical and tangible, and that or that every human being is obligated to learn of, there are three things, three categories here. There is a knowledge of that which is to do with a person's belief, then there is a knowledge of that which is to do with a person's actions, and then there is a knowledge of that which is to do with things that you need to avoid and things you need to leave. So the to-dos and the 
and the not to do's and the don'ts. Okay. He points out that in each of these there are elements of fardha'in knowledge. When it comes to creed, there are things that are fardha'in. When there are things to do, there are things that are to do with. There are, there's aspects of fardha'in knowledge there. And things that you need to avoid, there are also, also aspects of fardha'in knowledge there. Things that must be learned and without them, you are deficient, you are incomplete. Now when it comes to the second part, he then says, when it comes to fard kifaya, when it comes to fard kifaya, knowledge which is not mandatory upon every individual, rather it's open-ended. Some people learn it, it'll do. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَلَوْلَا نَفَرَ مِن كُلِّ فِرْقَةٍ مِّنْهُمْ طَائِفَةٌ لِيَتَفَقَّهُ فِي الدِّينِ وَلِيُنْذِرُ قَوْمُمْ إِذَا رَجَعُوا إِلَيْهِمْ لَعَلَّهُمْ يَحْذَرُونَ That from every group of people, there should be a smaller group that goes and studies the deen, and then their, their task will be to come back to their people and educate them, guide them, warn them accordingly. We don't want everyone going to study, because then the community will be abandoned. A small group of people need to go, who will gain this kifaya knowledge. And then they will come back, and they will serve everyone, and they will educate them. Now, when we talk about this second tier of knowledge, knowledge that a group of people need to have, and that'll suffice, Imam Abu Hamad al-Ghazali says that it breaks down into two categories. There is that which is shari'i, and there is that which is ghayr shari'i. Some knowledge is to do with religion, right? This is knowledge to do with religion. And then there are second aspects of it, which is not to do with religion. Now, he says, أَعْنِي بِالشَّرْعِيَّ مَسْتُفِيدًا مِنَ الْأَنْبِيَاءِ عَلَيْهِمُ السَّلَامِ When I say knowledge to do with religion, Ghazali himself defines that and says, here I'm referring to knowledge which is derived directly from the Prophets of Allah. عَلَيْهِمُ السَّلَامِ And when we talk about, وَالْعُلُومُ الَّتِي لَيْسَتْ When we're talking about knowledge that is not shari'i, not religious, again air quotes here, we're talking about knowledge which is derived from human experience. That's a result of human beings studying certain subjects and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala opening their hearts. Because ultimately the truth is all knowledge comes from Allah. Whether it's math, cooking or otherwise, it's all from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Subhanaka la ilma lana illa ma'allamtana. We do not have knowledge except for that which you have given us, Ya Allah. Okay. By any chance, do any of you guys have a charger for this? If you have one, I'm on 4%. Jazakallah khairan. Do you have one too? I'll just use this one. God plug it. No, I don't need that. Oh. Okay, there we go. Sorry about that. Now, when we're speaking of knowledge that isn't religious in its nature, that's not revealed from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Imam Ghazali says, now this further breaks down into two categories. There is that which is mahmud, and then there is that which is madhmum. And he said, if you want, you can also create a third category, and it is that which is, um, that which is uh, mubah. 
So Mahmud refers to that knowledge which is praiseworthy. A person should learn it. They should study it. The example that he gives, he says, that that which allows you to connect with, the, with um, bettering society or contributing towards people in a positive way, even though it may not be religious knowledge, but there's benefit to it because you can offer value to someone else or something else. For example, he says medicine or uh, a math. Then the second is that which is disliked. This is knowledge of evil things. For example, he says, uh, The example of that is learning magic. It's not a praiseworthy thing. It's an evil thing. Don't learn it. And then the, he says, the third is mubah. There is that knowledge which in itself doesn't necessarily add value to society or people directly, but in an auxiliary way it does. So it's primitive. It's jayz. It's not praiseworthy. It's not like you get extra reward for doing it. And neither is there a sin for doing it, but it's okay. And the example that he gives is, فَالْعِلْمُ بِالْأَشْعَارِ لَا سَخْفَ بِهَا Right? وَالْتَارِيخِ وَالْأَخْبَارِ Learning history, for example. Or for example, he, he, gives a, he talks about learning poetry. But the truth is, each of these things could easily become praiseworthy or blameworthy depending on how you learn it and what you're learning and how you use it. You guys follow what I'm saying? Like, one person could learn poetry purely as uh, a literary art. For that person, it's mubah. That's it. It's a good thing. I mean, it's permissible. Go ahead and do it. Another person learns poetry, but they're learning it with a valid, very positive intention that I'm going to use it for good messaging. That's clearly Mahmud at this point. It's praiseworthy. And then another person learns it with an ill intent. I think the same thing would go, for example, if someone asked me, What's, what's Islam's understanding on learning graphic designing or learning art or learning how to use, uh, learning videography, photography, same thing. These are all different modes of art and communication. It boils down to what are you going to use it for? What are you planning to use it for? You tell us and then we can give you your ruling, your ruling accordingly. Now another thing that Imam Abu Hamid al-Ghazali ta'ala says that when it comes to knowledge, so this whole breakdown of knowledge, the purpose behind it is so you understand that there's so much here that needs to be understood. And when you're building a curriculum, when you're creating a system for education to exist in, this diagram or this division, this whole categorization needs to exist before you so you can pick and choose things accordingly and ensure that your curriculum that's being offered is exhaustive in the sense that it covers enough for the student to grow and develop and be of substance, right? They can be of substance and positive contributors to society and have an idea of how to walk their way to Jannah, as opposed to just having a part of it. And I'll be honest with you here, my shaykh, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala shower his mercy upon him, he was very big on this. He used to say that teaching children just ulum shari'a, just teaching them Islam, he said it was wrong, you were doing them wrong. You were doing them wrong just by teaching them Quran, hadith, fiqh. Why? He said because you're not educating them with the knowledge they need to live in the world. How are they going to interact with people? 
How are they going to live in society? How are they going to contribute back? Those very same children then feel guilty deep inside because they feel like they're at a disadvantage when it comes to looking eye to eye or engaging with the world outside of their circle of people who are religious or who fit that same mold that they're in. So he would adamantly encourage us. Um, all students in madrasa take classes. We did our GCSEs. He required everyone. I mean, by state you were required to, but he mandated everyone do GCSEs. And it's like the, uh, uh, you know how we go into 12th grade in America? I think in England they go to the 10th grade, right? They have 10th grade, then 11th and 12th grade is A-levels. And then after that there's college. If I'm correct, something like that. So we would do our GCSEs first. And when it came to that, he ensured the teachers that we had and the curriculum standards that were offered were top tier. Top tier. I mean, the students in our madrasa would, would perform in the top percentile. Alhamdulillah. Making sure that these people were competent. They were confident. You're offering them a broad understanding of the deen. Uh, just as a child's education should not purely and only be Islamic, in a world that's so complicated and sophisticated, you want to make sure they understand the world they're going into. You don't want the opposite to exist either. Where all they're learning is ilmu dunya and how to be in the world and how to get yourself through this life. But when you ask them, what do you know about Allah and what do you know about the akhirah, they don't know anything. Now, the last part of this discussion that I want to have today about knowledge. There's two more points that I want to discuss. Each of them is detailed and there's a lot of uh, depth in each of these conversations, I'm going to try to be as brief as I can. The first thing is, Muslim scholars have a very lengthy discussion on what we view to be valid sources of knowledge. And on top of that, what weight is given to knowledge based off of which of, its, which of these sources it comes from. Okay, let me explain. So they say, Asbabu husur al-ilmi thalathatun. That overall, there are three main mediums through which knowledge is acquired. The first one, anyone know? No, that's going to be the last one. We'll make that one at last. Hawas khamsa, right? Or just hawas, so how about we leave, it, leave the khamsa out? Hawas, your senses. Okay? A person learns by searing, seeing, hearing, touching, tasting. By interacting with the world, what happens is your knowledge increases, it grows. You learn. However, one thing you must keep in mind is that knowledge that you gain from your senses in Islam is viewed as one of the weaker sources of knowledge because knowledge that is acquired through your senses is partial. You guys understand? Max here may touch this bottle and it's cold. So now his knowledge is that this is cold. Two hours later he touches it, it's hot. Are you guys following me? His senses led him to two different conclusions on the same bottle, that it was warm, it was cold. You can't rely on information simply because it's been delivered to you through your senses. The second thing that you have to understand is that the human senses are limited. And that's musallam, that's accepted, right? 
There's so much that's happening around us right now, I mean, in matter-wise, that we don't see. There are sounds that we don't hear. The human senses are limited. So the second tier of knowledge, and this is where the sense is him touching the bottle. Once he has this knowledge of touching the bottle, okay, it's cold, or touching the bottle, okay, it's hot, he needs to fit it into the second tier or the second path through which we acquire knowledge, which is aql, intellect. He has to take this information and feed it into his intellect. What does my intellect tell me? He might say, well, it was cold a little while ago because that's when I pulled it out of the fridge. It's hot right now because I left it in the sun for the last two hours. Makes sense. His aql helps him rationalize and make sense out of the world. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given the human being aql. And this aql is so profound, this intellect of the human being is so profound. Therefore, one thing that I always highlight to students is that any gathering or any circle of knowledge that stimulates you intellectually, makes you reconsider your perspective, is a knowledge of gathering, that it's a gathering of knowledge you need to be in. Because your aql is developing. Just like when you go to a gym, you build your muscles, right? When you go to gatherings of knowledge, your aql should develop. Some folks, when they teach, they teach you to lean on them. They don't teach you to walk. Are you guys following me here? Your job is to lean on me. You don't have a path of knowledge without me. So their job is to make people connected to them. I would argue the better approach is to equip people with the right tools so that way they can see the world in proper context of ethical morality that this is right and this is wrong. Understanding things as intended by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You're empowering them with knowledge because that's what knowledge does. It empowers people, it gives them strength, it builds them, it develops them. Okay? the intellect. But just with the senses, now this is the hard part. This is the part where the West takes a left turn and they go, you know that meme where like you take a turn and you go, <laughs> this is where the West goes, they go like, they take a turn. And what is that? It's this. They believe the aql, the intellect of the human being is foolproof and cannot be faulty. So that's where the journey of knowledge ends. Prove it to me, Make sure I can rationally understand it. If I do, great. If I don't, it's not happening. In Islam, we point out that the human aql is powerful. But at the end of the day, like any other gift from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, any other component of the human being, it's in a constant state of decline. Time is in decline. The human being is in decline. يُرَدُّ إِلَىٰ أَرْضَرُ الْعُمَرُ As Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us. And the human aql is also, it's incomplete. And there's a point where it just starts its decline and starts making its way down. There are things that you don't understand, and then there are things you do understand. And this is a lengthier discussion of the role of aql, intellect, in religion. Muslims are under this false notion that Islam discourages the usage of human intellect when it comes to rationalizing the religion. This is faulty, this is not true. This is not true at all. 
Muslim scholars really emphasize the importance of understanding the deen through a rational intellectual perspective. And that's because once that happens, once your mind is convinced of something, it's so much easier to do it. But if it hasn't, if it hasn't been rationalized to you, if your mind hasn't made sense out of something, you're going to be burdened with that thing. Someone tells you that you need to pray salah, and if you don't rationally understand why you're praying salah, it's going to be hard for you. Right? If you don't know why you're learning math or why you're, why you're learning science when you're at a young age, it's going to be so hard for you. You're not going to get it. Why am I doing this? It's kind of like, you know, the story of every kid that ever went to Kumon in their life. <laughs> Mom hates me. Dad hates me. This is the closest thing to Jahannam in the dunya. So they signed me up for Kumon. This goes back to what I was saying earlier. When the, when the objective is defined, the path to it becomes that much easier. So the second thing, the aql, there are limitations to it. This must be understood. The third tier of knowledge, this is what they refer to as al-khabar as-sabiq, truthful information. Right? And when we're talking about truthful information here, I'm going to just jump right to the top of the ladder, revelation. In Islam, we view revelation to be the highest source of knowledge. There is nothing above that. This framework I offered right now, it's something the ulama of Aqidah and Kalam discuss thoroughly. If there was a wand that I had that I can wave and have this embedded in the mind of every young Muslim, I would do it right now. The whole formula is skewed. People have revelation at the bottom of the list. Their senses on top of that and their intellect above that. Revelation doesn't stand a chance to convince these people. Because they don't view, they don't understand the priority that revelation has in their life. What does it actually mean? So their politics trump revelation. Bichara the Qur'an is like this miskeen kid that's standing in the room that's trying to say, no, don't do this, don't do this. And the people are saying, shh, you stay quiet, Qur'an. You talk when I talk to you. Otherwise you look down in the corner, don't speak too loud. No one's asking for your opinion, Qur'an. That's what happens. If this discussion doesn't exist, if this mindset doesn't exist, we teach Qur'an like this miskeen that's standing in the corner of the room in timeout. That's how the Qur'an is treated. And then when all the adults are done talking, at the end, when all the important decisions are done and people have discussed you know, how they're going to run their politics and what their worldview is, at the end of the gathering, they call the miskeen child, Oh Qur'an, come here. Why don't you do a little performance for us and read some Qur'an for us. And that miskeen stands there and reads a few verses and does a little performance. And he say, you're done with your performance? Now go back to your corner. This is our relationship with the Qur'an. We'll read it as an art. <laughs> Should I share a story with you guys? You guys know Jamal Abdul Nasir? Anyone know who Jamal Abdul like, yes, I know who Jamal Abdul Nasir is. He was a ruler in Egypt who had um, strong communist leanings, lightly put. So 
one of my mashayikh shared this story with him. And he said that he heard this directly from the shaykh that was there. So Jamal Abdel Nasser was once going for a meeting with a communist. He went there. And when he went there, at the end of the meeting, they had some arts where someone came and they danced and did music. And it was like a whole performance. After that was done, Jamal Abdel Nasser said, since the next meeting is in our, on our home ground, when you guys come, we're going to have entertainment for you guys too. We'll, we'll show you what we can do. So they had their meeting. And in the side room waiting was Qari Abdul Basit, the famous reciter of the Qur'an. Qari Abdul Basit was called in and he was asked to read the Qur'an. And when he read it, Qari Abdul Basit said himself, and he shared this story with a scholar who shared it with me. Qari Abdul Basit said that I was reading the Qur'an in front of these uh, Russian dudes and, and dudettes. And he said... <laughs> In the middle of my recitation, I looked up and they were all in tears. Right? That's the effect the Qur'an has. That was his side of the story. Now let me hear my side of the story. Jamal Abdul Nasir Bilquf Insan. Right? He's talking about communism and he brings Qur'an in as art performance. Is this how you treat the Qur'an? That you, your Qur'an isn't needed. The Qur'an isn't welcome to the main discussion. The adults will talk about that. You stand in the corner in the meantime. Right? Quietly. Time out. And then when the big boys are done talking, we'll call you in for a little performance. That's what revelation has become in the eyes of Muslims. You want to convince them now, quoting the Qur'an and Sunnah is useless. You have to appeal to their rationality. And this is almost a tragedy. Actually, scrap almost. This is a tragedy where we are. And it's because our priorities and understanding how knowledge is received and what weight should be given to each of these sources is skewed. The last discussion we're going to have is knowledge. The ulama, they say that there are three major tiers to seeking knowledge. The first, before you even start seeking it, be sincere. Be sincere for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this is a great moment for us to renew our intentions as we start this new series and new class. We ask Allah that He gives us pure intentions. Because pure intentions cannot be acquired but through Him gifting it to us. We don't know what pure intentions feel like. We don't know what they look like. Ya Allah, so we ask You to gift them to us. We ask You to open our mind and open our hearts and remove any distractions that we have. Number two, when you gain knowledge with sincerity, the second thing is to do amal act upon it. Therefore, if you go back to the definition that Imam Ghazali gave of knowledge, he talked about how knowledge is transformative and allows you to see your own flaws. So knowledge isn't gained for a tweet or to share. First and foremost, it's for amal. Otherwise, your knowledge won't bring any change. And the last thing is now da'wah and tabligh. Once you have that knowledge, go and convey it to the world. People want to do da'wah and tabligh, no ilm. This is wrong. You're going to cause a big problem. They say we're only going to focus on the basics. We all know how that goes, right? Yes or no? Anyone that says I'm only going to focus on the basics, what happens 20, 10 minutes into the conversation? They're giving fatwa. That's what they're doing. Everyone, within 10 minutes. 
I was yesterday when we were having lunch with Sheikh Hamza, he was he brought up this issue where he said Muslim scholars have historically agreed that abortion is haram in Islam, minus a few cases, minus a few scenarios where like a mother's life is at risk or if there's rape involved, and there are some discussions there. But the general ruling regarding abortion in Islam is what, guys? It's not permitted. They don't allow it. He said these days we have people out there who've never read any true text with a scholar, don't have any true mentorship, right? And they're out there giving fatwa that it's jayas because so-and-so said it, so-and-so said it. You know, that, you know, so-and-so scholar said it, and therefore it's jayas. Well, you'll find opinions for everything. Right? What credibility do you have to speak on behalf of the deen? So when it goes to activism and da'wah, first humble yourself and study the deen. Every movement, this is going to be mean what I'm saying right now, but it's a real observation, it's a hard observation. Every movement that has tried to gather the masses to get them involved with da'wah on the promise that we will only work off of the bare minimum, in the long run, there's a lot of harm that comes out of it. Do you guys understand? In the long run, there is a lot of harm that comes out of it. Immediately you get good results. Because small scope, small knowledge, get everyone involved, let's get people going and we're going to have results. The problem is, two things I've seen. Number one, many of these folks forget to realize that their knowledge was limited and when it comes to discussions outside of their scope, they don't hold back. And they cause a lot of harm. And they speak with authority even though they have zero. Number two, they end up belittling knowledge because they, re they see that little knowledge has given me so much in terms of results, what's the point in learning at all? It's like some dude who watched two YouTube videos and figured out how to lift a little and is like, you know guys, I already know this. Calm down, buddy. Right? They watch one video on how to do a crossover and do a fadeaway and they're like, oh, I know how to play and I'm ready for the NBA. Slow down, Habib, show ya. Right? You're not ready for it right now. But they're arrogant, they're delusional. Right? And this is what they refer to as compound ignorance. They're unaware of their ignorance. Now, amplify that into a movement. Can you, can you see this picture? Turn this one person into a whole movement. It becomes problematic. If you look at da'wah uh, and tabligh, tabligh jama'ah across the world, in the fundamental tenets or the fundamental sifat that a person needs to develop in themselves, they say, ilm. Everyone needs to have ilm. Emphasize that everyone needs to have ilm. There need to be circles of knowledge. Everyone needs to be constantly growing in their deen because if that stops, there's no good of you. There's no good for you anymore. You can't, you can't contribute here anymore. Okay, folks. With that, we're going to stop here. This was our first discussion. It was an introductory discussion to the subject. Since we are talking about education, I wanted to spend this night speaking of knowledge because that is the subject of education. With Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's guidance, next week, inshallah, we'll start the class. We pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accepts and grants us tawfiq. Wa sallallahu ta'ala ala Sayyidina Muhammad. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi ta'ala wa barakatuh.